Christ, it is only through you that we come to our Father. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for rising again. Thank you for ascending, being exalted there in heaven. And thank you for interceding for us day in, day out. It's in you and you alone that we have our hope. If we grounded our hope in anything less, uh, we would be doomed. And so thank you for your consistent uh, love toward us and your grace toward us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. One of the recurring themes throughout Luke's Gospel is this idea of the kingdom has come or the kingdom has arrived, or other times you read, the kingdom of God is at hand. You'll find phrases like that all throughout Luke's gospel. This morning is another example of that development of Luke's theme throughout his gospel. And so if you're there in Luke chapter 11, before I read our text, I just want you to glance up to the beginning of the chapter where we find the Lord's Prayer, specifically at the end of verse 2. Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Now, if you've read the book of Matthew, you know that, that, that there's a longer version of that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That little line, though, your kingdom come, is now going to be illustrated in our text this morning. It was already happening way back there 2,000 years ago. It continues to happen today. But here's the thing. Not everybody was excited that the kingdom of God had arrived back then, nor is everyone excited today that the kingdom of God has arrived. There are many hearts that are blind uh, to the truth of Jesus, and in their unbelief, they resist that truth to their own peril. In our passage this morning, these unbelievers were Pharisees. Today, of course, we don't have people that necessarily go by that title, uh, but certainly their actions prove strikingly similar. So follow along as I read in, from our text this morning. I'm going to start at verse 14 and read down through verse 23. Luke 11, verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And that's where we'll end for this morning, verse 23. The focus of this little passage is not so much on the demon-possessed man as it is on Jesus' power and the Pharisees' resistance to that. By the way, uh, you notice here in verse 15 that Luke says, some of them said. He doesn't tell us who it was, but Matthew tells us specifically in his account when the Pharisees heard it, and if you go read Mark's account of this uh, story, he says it was the scribes who were there. So we know who the opposition is. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees are hearing plenty about this Jesus guy. And even though Jesus is right in the midst of his Galilean ministry, they're starting now to send out spies to search Jesus out. They, They want to drum up some charges really against him. And eventually, when they cannot succeed in those manners, they plot to kill him. And I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine a greater sin than that of murdering the very Son of God. But they're blind to the truth. They are hard toward Jesus. The animosity is just beginning to ramp up now in Luke's gospel. But by the very end of this chapter, even chapter 11, it's going to reach this fever pitch when Jesus openly pronounces woes against them, the Pharisees and the scribes. Look, go down to the end of verse 11. Look what happens when Jesus pronounces woes. Verse 53. He went away from there. And what did the scribes and Pharisees do? They began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The scribes and Pharisees move from suspicioning Jesus to questioning Jesus to disliking Jesus and finally to outright hatred of Jesus all the way through to their murderous act at the end of Jesus' earthly life. One of the things that I love to do when I study for sermons is to read historical commentaries, commentaries that describe the context of what's happening around a story. To me, it just brings life to the story. You begin to understand more the tone and the temper of what was happening uh, in that uh, era and in that time. It was fascinating to me as I was reading one historical commentary, to discover how quickly and far-reaching this hostile attitude toward Jesus extended. At this period of time, Jews who started to follow after Jesus were called minim, M-I-N-I-M, minim. Minim, of course, were despised by men of the great Sanhedrin because they rejected the Pharisaical tradition in favor of following Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees wrote something into their daily prayers about the minim. In the Amida, that's, that's a, a Hebrew word that means standing prayer. Uh, in the Amida, we find where this is written. The Amida is perhaps the most important prayer in the synagogue outside of the Shema. The title 
Edema means 18 because there were 18 blessings that were spoken during this prayer. And this prayer is meant to be prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. If you go read the prayer, it's very impressive. It begins and ends with, Blessed art thou, Lord. In this prayer, the edema, the worshiper not only praises God for blessings he receives, he, he asks for an increase in the knowledge of the law, he asks for forgiveness of sin, healing, peace, favor to be bestowed upon proselytes, so on and so forth. But this prayer was changed during the time of Christ to include a condemnation against Jesus' followers. And here's the formula that they adopted. Here's what was written into the prayer. May the Nazarenes and the Minim perish and be exterminated in a moment. Isn't that interesting? Three times a day they were to pray this. May the Nazarenes and the Minim perish and be exterminated in a moment. Even the third uh, century apologist Justin Martyr remarked once to the Jews, in your synagogues, you curse those who believe in Christ. So intense was Jewish hostility toward Jesus and his followers that the Pharisees and the scribes were willing to even overlook uh, when a synagogue leader might inadvertently, in reciting the Amida, uh, skip over one or two of the petitions, but they ruled this. If he skips over the condemnation of the minim, he loses his position. Now, if you follow that prayer through the centuries, that's still a prayer today in 2023, but that line item was gradually modified so that today, in blessing number 12, it just simply reads, let there be no hope for slanderers and let all wickedness perish in a moment. It's still in there. And in fact, if you go read, and and you can find this online, modern rabbis don't hide the fact that historically this blessing was used as somewhat of a litmus test against ancient leaders. They would listen as people were reciting this prayer. And if someone refused to recite the condemnation against Minim, then they were suspected of heresy and subjected to excommunication. These guys aren't joking around. They hated Jesus. They hated every follower, every person who dared to name the name of Jesus. They were utterly, completely despised, unworthy of life itself. And it's at this point in the story, when these guys start coming down from headquarters back at the great Sanhedrin, that they start to worry about what they're seeing. It's become clear to them that Jesus can perform miracles, including casting out demons, But what's becoming equally clear is that Jesus is not in line, uh, theologically teaching, with theirs. So they've come to this early conclusion that the source of his miraculous power must be satanic. And so they've come now to prove their theory, and they think that they found it on this day when Jesus heals a demoniac. 
We're not told much about this demon-possessed man. Again, the focus really here is on Jesus and the Pharisees, their interaction. But we do know that this demon that overtook this poor man was a demon that rendered his victim unable to speak. He was mute. Some people believe the, the word means even more than that. Possibly the man was motionless and in somewhat of a melancholy state of insanity. We know that, of course, from this text, even here in verse 19, that Jews had their own exorcists, and I don't know, perhaps some of them have come and tried to cast the demon out of this guy. We're not told for sure, but we do know that when Jesus cast the demon out of this man, the evidence of the miracle was that the man spoke. And as he spoke, it says that the people marveled Uh, Luke tells us, Matthew even adds the line, can this be the son of David? The people are fascinated by Jesus. Immediately, and certainly in a reaction to the amazement of the crowd, the spying scribes and Pharisees submit their own conclusion to the people. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, you'll find a variation on that name. Back in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 1, you'll read about a god that was worshipped there called Belzebub. It was the idol god of Ekron, and the name meant Lord of the Flies. If you've ever read that novel, Lord of the Flies. The god Belzebub in the Old Testament was worshipped in the low-lying cities along the seacoast as a god who could avert the plague of flies and insects. It was a local and understandable problem. They would pray to this god. And over time, that name changed its spelling to Beelzebul, what we see here in the New Testament. The change in the name is not entirely clear, but one explanation seems to carry a lot of weight. In the Hebrew, there's a play on words happening here with this name. The ending of this name, Zabul, resembles a very similar word in Hebrew, Zabel, which means dung, manure, waste. And so those who despised the Baal of Ekron were able, by slightly changing the pronunciation, to heap scorn upon that God by calling him nothing more than the Lord of Dung. And by the time you get here to the New Testament, Beelzebul is synonymous with Satan. He was considered the prince or the lord or the ruler, the leader of the demons. I want to point something out here that shouldn't escape your attention. The scribes and the Pharisees describe Jesus's power, or excuse me, ascribe Jesus's power to Beelzebul. Later in verse 18, Jesus equates Beelzebul with Satan. Those are one and the same, Satan and Beelzebul. Here's what I want you to notice. All of the characters in this account believe that Satan is a real and living being. It is assumed 
in this passage and throughout the entire Bible that a kingdom of evil exists. It is armed and thoroughly organized to carry out its dreaded purposes. And in language that rises above questioning, there exists a chief of this evil empire. The Bible does not refer to Satan as merely symbolic of evil or injustice. It consistently and categorically reveals him as a living, hellish, angelic being. He is called the dragon, the old serpent in Revelation 12 and 20. He's called the prince of this world in John 12 and 14. The prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. The god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. And the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians 2. He tempted our Lord in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He is the constant enemy of God, of Christ, of the divine kingdom, of the followers of Christ, and of all truth. He is full of falsehood and all malice, and he tempts and he seduces to evil in every possible way. His power is very great in the world. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5. Men are said to be taken captive by him in 2 Timothy 2. Christians are warned against his devices, 2 Corinthians 2, and called upon to resist him in James 4. Christ redeems his people from him that has the power of death, that is the devil, in Hebrews 2. For anyone to deny the existence of a real being named Satan is either ignorant of scripture, intellectually dishonest, or they are simply rejecting the plain doctrine before them, often with a desire to ultimately subvert the justice of God in his punishment of evil. Satan is real. The Pharisees believed it. The scribes believed it. And Jesus believed it. Don't try to deny it. If you try to deny the existence of Satan, it will lead you theologically to a place you do not want to go. The Pharisees look at this miracle that has happened and they immediately jump to this conclusion. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, it's interesting to me that others seek from Jesus a sign. It's not enough that with a single word, Jesus could cast out a demon. It's always fascinating to me. It's not enough that he has done that over and over again with unfaltering victory. No, no, no. So many of the people in this time looked at it and said, yeah, that's just a miracle on earth. If we really want to know if this is the, the son of God, if he's really working for God, then he would have some sign from heaven. And maybe they're thinking about the fire that came down uh, when Elijah was there with the prophets of Baal. Or maybe they're thinking about Mount Sinai as it shook and the thunder and the lightning uh, when Moses was there. What they're really doing when they ask for a sign from heaven, is they are tempting God with an accusation. Something the Bible warns very clearly against. And so Jesus begins to unpack 
what's happening here, and he starts to expose their blindness and hard-heartedness. First, notice Jesus' use of his divine omniscience. Look at verse 17 again. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. Now think about that for a moment. Our Lord knew their reasoning. Our Lord knew the conclusions they were drawing from the preconceived ideas they had in their mind when they arrived here. He knew their thoughts. And when he now responds in such a way that he reveals their thoughts out loud to them, they should have sat back and said, what in the world? This guy can read our thoughts. He knew what we were thinking. He knew our reasoning. But they absolutely miss that omniscience that Jesus displays. They were so obstinate in their hardness of heart that every miracle Jesus performed was lost in their determination to disbelieve anything good that could come from this Jesus of Nazareth. But he nonetheless exposes them. First, he exposes their illogical judgment. Look again at verse 17 at the end. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Right? If we were to put this into modern terms, you and I would understand today, think about it like this. The United States Army would never send its soldiers into enemy territory in order to conquer it and then begin systematically shooting and killing its own soldiers on the battlefield. That would be ludicrous. You'd say they're out of their minds. It's ultimately self-defeating. And so for these Pharisees to suggest that Jesus was using the power of Satan to cast out the rank and file of Satan was equally ludicrous. It makes no sense. Why would that ever happen? It exposes the length to which these Pharisees will go to dismiss Jesus. Next, Jesus exposes their inconsistent application of what they just said. Remember, they, they had exorcists too. We're not told the success rate of the Jewish exorcists, but apparently they're mildly successful, at least at some short-term relief, because in the next set of verses that we'll study uh, the next time we're together, Jesus talks about unclean spirits leaving. The problem was there's nothing left behind to, to fill the void. And so maybe these Jewish exorcists could temporarily cast out a demon. Maybe not. Maybe they did it permanently. But Jesus' point is equally clear in verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They'll be your judges. In other words, if you say that I cast out the demons by the power of Satan, then by whose power are your sons doing the very same thing? Because it's a little bit hard to answer consistently. Because if we're both claiming to do it by the power of God, we're either both telling the truth or we're both telling a lie. 
And then Jesus sort of lands this truth bomb there on the ground. In verse 20, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is not by accident that Jesus uses that phrase by the finger of God. Because as soon as he says that to the scribes and the Pharisees, every one of their minds would have been rushing back to Exodus chapter 8 where we read that same phrase. And in Exodus chapter 8, we read about the plagues that are brought upon Egypt. If you remember the order, the first plague was water turning into blood. And in Exodus 7, verse 20, we read, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff, he struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all of Egypt. But what happened next? Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Second plague, similar story. In Exodus chapter 8, the Lord did according to the word of Moses, the frogs, that's the second plague, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, the fields, they gathered them together in heaps, the land stank, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, would not listen to them as the Lord said. But on the third plague, something different happened. In Exodus 8, we read, Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. He struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats so on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now catch this. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even the magicians way back then recognized, we can't do this. This is nothing but the power of God. And Jesus now in Luke 11 goes back and he snatches that little phrase from the memories of the Pharisees and he proclaims with divine authority, verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Your own exorcists, your sons, will only say God can cast out demons. This means I am casting out demons with God's power, proof positive that the kingdom has come upon you. This is nothing short of mind-blowing for the Pharisees. When God's kingdom arrives on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, there is no stopping its power. And to illustrate that power, Jesus tells a little mini story in verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. 
A strong man always has a fear that someone stronger will come along and take away all that he owns. The strong man in this story is Satan, and he has set up his dynasty on earth and would like to think that no one else is able to threaten him. But in Jesus, God has shown himself to be stronger than Satan. Listen, men, humans, can conquer other men. Nations can conquer other nations. Men can conquer land and people and possessions. We witness that happening around the world today, right? With enough tanks and enough missiles and enough soldiers using overwhelming force and brute strength, men can conquer other men bodily. But there is one thing that man can never conquer. Man cannot conquer a hard heart. There is no amount of convincing, threatening, coercing, or pleading that man can do to overcome a hard, unbelieving heart. Some of you in this room understand that all too well. Because some of you in this room have loved ones to whom you've talked and you've pleaded. Maybe you've scolded or you've tried everything within your power for that person to come to saving faith in Jesus. And you have found, much to your dismay, that Satan is indeed a strong man. The old Puritan and prolific writer, commentator, Matthew Henry, wrote an extended commentary about this text. I'm going to read this. I love it. It's fascinating. Here's what Matthew Henry says. This, talking about this, this illustration, verses 21 and 22, this is the miserable condition of an unconverted sinner. In his heart, which was fitted to be a habitation of God, the devil has his palace. And all the powers and the faculties of the soul being employed by him in the service of sin are his goods. Note, Henry says, one, the heart of every converted sinner is the devil's palace where he resides and where he rules. He works in the children of disobedience. The heart is a palace, a noble dwelling, but the unsanctified heart is the devil's palace. His will is obeyed, his interests are served, and the militia is in his hands. He usurps the throne in the soul. Second, Henry says, the devil, as a strong man, armed, keeps this palace, does all he can to secure it to himself and to fortify it against Christ. All the prejudices with which he hardens men's hearts against truth and holiness are the strongholds which he erects for the keeping of his palace. This palace is his garrison. And third, finally, there is a kind of peace in this palace of the unconverted soul while the devil, as the strong man armed, keeps it. The sinner has a good opinion of himself is very secure in Mary, 
has no doubt concerning the goodness of his state, nor any dread of the judgment to come. He flatters himself in his own eyes, and he cries peace to himself. Before Christ appeared, all was quiet, because all went one way. But listen to this last phrase. But the preaching of the gospel disturbed the peace of the devil's palace. The preaching of the gospel disturbed the peace of the devil's palace. Satan is a strong man, but indeed there is one stronger. It is Jesus Christ, the stronger man, and Jesus and Jesus alone can conquer a hard heart. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. He bore in himself the stripes due for me and you. And he rose again on the third day, conquering once and for all sin and death and Satan. And when that gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to a dead, rebellious, hard heart, Jesus can snatch that heart from the strong man and he keeps the spoils for himself. And he gives life. And he gives faith and he gives repentance and he gives joy and there is literally nothing Satan can do about it. Satan has no authority when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords arrives on the scene. Jesus alone overcomes the believer's resistance. And every person now is responsible for what they're going to do with this Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now we're going to unpack that verse a little more the next time as we move into this next passage because they are related. But suffice it to say for now that there are only two ways when it comes to Jesus. Two. That's it. You either believe on Jesus or you reject him. By believing on him, you have acceptance from the Father. But if you reject Jesus, you are proving that Satan is still the strong man of your heart. The Pharisees' resistance remained. They refused to believe the miracles. They refused to believe the truth. They refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Instead, they killed him. And when they met him again at their death, they tragically met him as their judge. No more chances. Friend, don't be like the Pharisees. See Jesus for who he truly is. Believe on him while there is still time. The kingdom of God has come. Won't you repent while he is patiently waiting for you? Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that Jesus is the the stronger man. I'm so thankful that Satan has no authority 
when Jesus arrives on the scene. I'm so thankful that with one word, Jesus can do whatever he wants with Satan and Satan's kingdom. And I'm so thankful that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who can conquer a hard heart. If we could do it on our own, we would take credit for it. We can't. We fail. We try. We fail. And yet Jesus arrives and he can overcome the hard heart. He can give life. He can give faith. He can give repentance. All things that we've sung about this morning. We thank you that Jesus is the stronger man. I thank you for every person in this room who has named the name of Jesus, who now knows as, as Minim, as they were described, uh, face the hatred of Satan, face the hatred of the world, but find their hope and their blessing in you. And I pray if there's a person in this room this morning who has not named the name of Jesus, who has not given up that palace, that, that domain of Satan, that you would come in this morning and you would conquer. You would remove that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and their eyes would be opened. They would see Jesus as the great and holy one, and they would proclaim their faith in him. We love you for all you have done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus' name.